This is Vintage Broadcasting, and I am Frank Goss. You're listening to Global Marxism from the Top Down, a series that is considering the chronological history of events that has served to steer our nation away from a constitutional republic and towards a socialistic collective based on Marxist ideology. To many, this may appear to be extreme, but I would remind you that truth is often stranger than fiction. Paying attention to history is something people do not tend to do, and most have little understanding of the foundational principles of the United States. It is our desire at Vintage Broadcasting to point out that Alexander de Tocqueville and his views of American exceptionalism were accurate. America has been a light for the world, showing what should be and could be. We must stand united and true to the principle of our Constitution, and never forget that we as a people and a nation hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We appreciate your participation and sincerely hope that you receive great benefit from the information provided. Socialists, Marxists, and Communists throughout the past century have almost all insisted that global socialism is definitely needed. And they all agree, too, on the chief weapon in their arsenal, government indoctrination posing as education. From the tyrants in Moscow and Beijing to the infamous Socialist International, the goal of global slavery in the form of global socialism has long been at the forefront of collectivist thinking, and schools have long been the means of forming this. As the tyrants of the world have discovered by experience over more than a century, so doing people under collectivist rule for any length of time can be very difficult, especially if the people can read and critically think, and if they know their history. But if the children can be brainwashed into collectivism early on in the government school, historical facts revised, the process becomes a great deal easier. But what exactly is meant by collectivism? How is collectivism being taught in public education. How would you recognize that? This is a value that is expressed neatly and simply by saying that we work best when we work together as a team. You see, together, everybody achieves more. Schools teach using methods that reinforce essential ideas of collectivism, and this is referred to as the science of teaching or pedagogy. It incorporates repetition, rules, and recognition of authority and fundamental principles. How is collectivism practiced? Well, a child arrives at school at an established time. And every child must be in his or her seat at an assigned time. Each child is taught using standardized techniques. Individual attention is limited as the group is considered to be more important than the individual. One teacher cannot spend too much time on one student when there are 23 others that need attention as well. Each child learns to accept the fact that he or she is part of a group, a cog in the great machine. And they must keep up and not hold up the advancement of the group or the collective of individuals in the class. Each child learns the same lesson as the next child. This serves to establish the idea of equality, which is seen as equity. Children sit in groups, not in individual chairs. This reinforces the idea that we're part of the collective. You see, no ship sails alone. No man is an island, and as Hillary told us so long ago, it takes a village. 
each child is able to socialize within that group. He or she notices the clothes of the other person. And to avoid conflicting issues, a code of conduct is established regarding what a student can or cannot wear, can or cannot say, and can or cannot do. In some instances, uniforms are required, and this helps establish conformity, which helps with crowd control. The more students in a room, the greater sense of conformity is developed. Each student begins to focus on the other student, taking note of how they talk, what they say, how they dress, and how they deport themselves. Behavior that steps outside of what the group deems to be normal is frowned upon, and that student is seen as a free spirit, and the teacher will need to keep an eye on that particular student. Each child is taught to regard the teacher as the highest authority in the room, and also they notice that the teacher has certain students that they favor. There's an order of authority that is being established. The student takes note of the demeanor and actions of those students who are favored, and by virtue of human desire will seek to conform to the standard being set forth. These are examples of how collectivism is instilled into the individual, and this is how the collectivist culture is established. Individualism will not flourish in this atmosphere. Each child has a responsibility and an obligation to follow the established rules, to fit in, and to be recognized as part of the group. A failure to do so will meet with reprisal. Also, each class is organized by particular age groups. Why? For the purpose of learning conformity. Three-year-olds act in a particular way, as do five-year-olds. If the young students commingle with the older students, a lack of conformity will interrupt the formation of understanding. The younger students always wish to copy the older and the more mature. Youth is always in a hurry. That would interrupt the establishment of the collective ideal. This is collectivism that is considered in our discussions regarding actions and attitudes. Then comes actual education. What is actually being formed in the minds of the children by means of repetitive instruction. First and foremost, and this was established by John Dewey, is the socialization of the child. He or she must learn to recognize their place in the crowd. They're nothing special, in spite of what mom and daddy say at home. The teachers have rule and reign, not mom and daddy. The student is simply one among many, and the proud will be humbled, if not by the teacher, then by the group. Even young children know how to humiliate the proud and the haughty. The pace of learning is established by the instructor. The child will learn that they need to keep up or they will drag the group down. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? The social aspects of life must be established early. The understanding that the teacher is in charge, not mom and daddy, must be fully understood. This is the setting and the establishment of political understanding in the mind of the young child. Then there is reading, writing, and arithmetic. These are actually secondary events. They are not unimportant by any estimation, but they are not seen as hypercritical. The idea of public education was to produce an individual capable of working in an industrialized society. The goal was not to change the world. Public education is not designed for this. It does not aim at developing critical thinking, depth of comprehension, and high aptitude. By design, its first aim is social adaptation and assimilation, followed by repetitive lessons on acceptance of authority and recognition of who is in charge. Reading, writing, and arithmetic follow these things. Those charged with making our kids smart have obviously failed in that area, but they have not failed in making them submissive and obedient. They've learned how to chain the elephant, but they are either not able to teach that elephant or they actually do not want to teach that elephant. An intelligent elephant will see how flimsy that chain actually is and how strong he actually is. 
Strong minds produce strong individuals. In public education, this is an anomaly, and it's not the aim or intention. The government is not interested in seeing the schools produce active and intelligent product. Intelligence leads to understanding, and understanding leads to questions, and questions require answers, and answers lead to discovery, and discovery leads to exposure, and exposure leads to problems. What public education was designed to produce was men and women capable of working to strengthen those industrialists who were the movers and the shakers in the nation. The aim was not to create activists with great minds. Consider the history and times of Horace Mann. They prefer to have a disengaged public, content to put in their time, produce the products needed, clock out, and go home. They want doers, not thinkers. The goal and intention of the public education is to teach the child to recall the things and the lessons that he or she has been taught, to regurgitate past accumulated information, not to be a free thinker. John D. Rockefeller funded these efforts in public education. He poured in millions upon millions of dollars. He also said that he wanted a nation of doers, not thinkers. Public education at that time, it is noted, was not encouraging the growth of young artists and scientists. They wanted young men who came off the farms to be intelligent enough to work in the factories, but otherwise stay just like they were. Those who were thinkers in the public school system were and are mercilessly harassed emotionally and physically by the bullies, and they're called geeks or nerds, and if they weren't harassed, they're socially excluded, and that is a painful thing. Thus, proper indoctrination is critical. The philosopher kings will rule, and we workers need to take care to do what we've been taught to do. Thus, the collectivist mindset must be instilled into every individual, beginning at the earliest point in time. Well, what if I want to farm my small plot of land, provide for my family, and help those around me when I can, and actually just live a quiet life, independent and free? Well, that would be antithetical, wouldn't it? That would be a self-centered approach to life. Why would you not want to be part of the collective? Why would you not want to contribute this would require reprisals, or perhaps re-education. Somewhere along the line, you have failed to understand. The individual must be eliminated, and the statist must be produced. You see, together, each achieves more. We work as a team. The more people who think this way, the better the world will be. Just think, if the world could embrace this singular idea, well, that would be heaven on earth. Utopia. So... Socialists and communists from around the world have joined forces to bring about this way of thinking. And they formed an organization known as United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. The goal is to advance the particular agenda of collectivism in the realm of education. The primary goal is simple. Control education around the world, weaponizing it to advance socialism, globalism, collectivism, and other dangerous isms that threaten individual freedom and self-government. It's obvious that from the beginning, and it remains obvious still today, that the views of UNESCO's leaders are entirely incompatible with a free society. Unfortunately, UNESCO now plays a dominant role in public education globally. It was formed in 1945 under the guise of ending war by building defenses of peace in the minds of men through education. 
UNESCO worked to hijack control over public schools from the very start. Where no government schools yet existed, UNESCO used American and European taxpayer money to establish schools or to bribe government to do it. And at every step in the process, these emerging indoctrination centers, marketed as educational institutions, work fiendishly to brainwash children into collectivism and globalism. The historical record on this global education organization is very clear. In fact, it's so obviously dominated by communists and subversives that President Ronald Reagan ordered a U.S. government withdrawal from UNESCO in 1983. Britain left for the same reasons. After some alleged reforms, the U.S. government rejoined in 2003 under George W. Bush. But the Trump administration once again pulled out along with Israel in 2018. When announcing the U.S. exit, the Reagan administration was blunt about the problems. Speaking at a press conference, State Department spokesman Alan Romberg said UNESCO exhibited hostility towards the basic institutions of free society, especially a free market and a free press. Indeed, UNESCO was promoting communism, humanism, and even a global licensing for journalists. Romberg also noted that the outfit politicized virtually every subject it deals with. But that was no surprise to anyone who had been paying attention. And the sad thing is, is that few of us pay attention. The very first director general of UNESCO was Julian Huxley, who also served as executive secretary of its preparatory commission, a collectivist in every sense of the term. Like John Dewey, previously exposed in detail in this series, and almost universally regarded as the architect of America's public educational system, Julian Huxley was also a devout and committed humanist. So devoted was he that he even served as the first president of the British Humanist Association, working to advance these ideas with John Dewey, whose humanist manifesto was basically socialism and communism masquerading as religion. And believe me, it's a very serious religion that Dewey promoted throughout the educational system. Julian Huxley was also quick to fill in the ranks of UNESCO with communists and socialists, as documented extensively in the book Freedom on the Altar, The UN's Crusade Against God and Family, written by William Normal Grigg. For instance, the chief of the Soviet Education Ministry served as director of UNESCO's Department of Secondary Education. John Dewey was enamored with the Soviet educational process. Now, that trend continues to the present day, with myriad card-carrying members of the Communist Party and the Socialist Party literally running this powerful global agency. The current director, Audrey Azoulé, is a socialist who proudly tells of her growing up in a radical left-wing family. Before her, it was Irina Bokova of Bulgaria, a descendant of high-ranking communists in Bulgaria. The communist nature of UNESCO became overpowering, as we mentioned earlier, and required America's pullout. Then George Bush put us back in. Many Americans who worked under Julian Huxley at UNESCO were communists, according to testimony by Chairman Pierce Gerty of the U.S. International Organization's Employees Loyalty Board, charged with preventing communist infiltration of U.S. delegations. UNESCO had a clique of Americans working in it who placed the interests of the communists and the communist ideology above their own country. The Senate Judiciary Committee concluded in 1956 that UNESCO was by far the worst from the standpoint of disloyal and subversive communist Americans in global organizations. That's because communists recognize the importance of weaponizing education and capturing the mind of the children. 
like Adolf Hitler and his nationalist socialist barbarians, Huxley was also a fervent advocate of eugenics, the idea of improving humanity by removing, literally, undesirables from the racial gene pool. So passionate was Huxley about breeding genetically superior human beings and removing degenerates, something Hitler dreamed of, something he compared also on numerous occasions to improving the quality of livestock, Huxley actually led the British Eugenic Society. Prior to founding UNESCO, he served as vice president of the eugenics group. After his term at UNESCO, he became, he became president of the eugenics organization. UNESCO was one of the ways in which he hoped to promote eugenics. In his infamous 1946 policy document, UNESCO, its purpose and philosophy, written during preparatory negotiations, Huxley said one of the key tasks for the organization would actually be to promote radical eugenics, even though it's quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible. It will be important for UNESCO to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become imaginable. Explaining why UNESCO's leadership has been so obsessed with the breaking down of children's moral values, the aim is to destroy and dismantle the nuclear family. Huxley was open about the fact that UNESCO was working to brainwash children into accepting a socialist world government. A fervent believer in Darwin's theory of evolution, Huxley declared in UNESCO its purpose and philosophy that political unification in some sort of world government would even be required for humanity to evolve to the next level. The world is in the process of becoming one, he said in the document. The major aim of UNESCO must be to help in the speedy and satisfactory realization of this process. Just a few years after its founding, UNESCO was already pumping out propaganda aimed at undermining individual liberty, the family, and the nation-state in the minds of small children. In a 10-part series of pamphlets headlined Total World Understanding, the Human Education Agency called for using schools to promote the concept of world citizenship. You remember the song, We Are the World? We Are the Children? As part of the world citizenship, schools would have to combat family attitudes on everything from nationalism or patriotism to religious beliefs and the nature of sin and what really is true. Of course, historical materialism would have to be taught and ingrained into the minds of the individual. When reading through UNESCO documents and the writings of its leading operatives, it becomes very clear that the goals went beyond just brainwashing children into instilling dangerous ideologies. In fact, Huxley and his cohorts envisioned creating an entirely new system of secular morality divorced from all major religions of the world. And he was going to do this by the means of education through government schools. Then the plan was to use government schools, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, behavior modification and conditioning, values clarification, indoctrination, and propaganda to replace old values and systems of morality with the new. It was audacious and extreme. We know that by hearing, just simply hearing this. But you know what? It's working. In the early 1960s, UNESCO had decided that traditional values of sexuality needed to be adjusted. Well, in fact, they needed to be replaced. And UNESCO-guided government schools around the world were to be the primary tool to bring about this sought-after change. This would help break down the nuclear family, 
crucial to any free and civilized society by promoting promiscuity and the breakdown of sexual morality. The aim was not confusion, per se, but the destruction of the nuclear family. And so, in 1964, UNESCO sponsored a conference in Germany claiming that sex education should begin at an early age. And since then, UNESCO has been relentless in sexualizing children. The trends toward socialism and communism within UNESCO only got more and more extreme. In 1970, for instance, UNESCO hosted a symposium on mass-murdering Soviet dictator Vladimir Lenin in Finland. Lenin was a man with a mind of great clarity and incisiveness, declared the then UN boss, Yuthant, at the event. His ideals of peace and peaceful coexistence among states are in line with the aims of the UN Charter. Apparently, nobody at the summit objected to the idea that Lenin, one of the cruelest mass murderers ever to walk on the face of the earth, shared the same values as the UN and its education arm. UNESCO's affinity for socialist and communist leaders continues to this day. As we mentioned, Aubrey Ozole, who boasted that she grew up in a radical left-wing family, is leading the outfit. Before that, she was a cultural minister in the government of former French President Francois Hollande. Of course, Hollande was a member of the French Socialist Party, which is itself a member of the Socialist International, the leading global alliance of Marxist, Socialist, and Communist parties, including many with the blood of countless innocents on the hand. None of this should be a surprise to us, considering the history of UNESCO. Very few of us truly recognize its founding, its origin, or its purpose. We don't keep up with it because it's not in the news. But, in fact, socialists and subversives in America were instrumental in creating this particular global agency. The National Education Association was a critical part of this. Indeed, the NEA, which has been dominated by socialists and collectivists for over a century, has openly promoted the creation of a planetary board of education in its publications with the goal of creating what they described as a world government. All this may sound so far-fetched and hard to believe, but open the pages of your books and read. World organization may have four branches which in practice have proved indispensable. The legislature, the judicial, uh, the executive, and the educational, wrote NEA Journal Chief Joy Elmer Morgan in a December 1942 editorial headline the United Peoples of the World. To keep the peace and ensure justice and opportunity, we need certain agencies of world administration such as a police force, a board of education, and much more. Hence, UNESCO. Morgan also called for the global government to have a world currency, a new calendar to replace the Christian calendar, a basic language, a board of health, a planning board, a radio television commission, a board to oversee economic matters, and much more. And if that sounds like a recipe for communism and totalitarian rule, it's because, really, that's what it was. For the next three years, the NEA Journal was filled with propaganda supporting a global board of education, and it came out of the ashes of the failed League of Nations, established by Woodrow Wilson. The organized teaching profession may well take hope and satisfaction from the achievements and the advancement it has already made towards world government and in its support of the United Nations and UNESCO. Gus Morgan in December of 1946 in the, NEA, in the NEA Journal. He was celebrating the Union's success. It is ours to hold ever before the people the ideals and principles of world government until the practice can catch up with the ideals. UNESCO was literally created to facilitate the emergence of the collectivist global system 
and its own leaders spoke openly about this. Trump's decision to leave UNESCO was helpful, but as this series will show in our studies in the future, the danger from this immersive agency and the UN itself remain very significant, especially when it comes to education. Its tentacles can now be found entangled in schools all across the United States and throughout the world. If freedom is going to survive, it's imperative that Americans become educated on the dangerous agenda of this supposed UN education agency. And we must be convinced that if you're going to dance with the devil, you're definitely going to get burned. Now, we should take note that on February 8, 2021, Joe Biden instructed the State Department to re-engage immediately and robustly with the UN Human Rights Council an organization that overwhelmingly stands in opposition to the interests of the United States. Also, the Biden administration is signaling its interest in re-engaging with UNESCO and is also pressuring Israel to do the same. The only problem? UNESCO renounces the legitimacy of the Jewish state and is staunchly anti-Semitic. Amazing. And still, little Johnny is having trouble. He can't read. Thank you for joining us today at Vintage Broadcasting. Your participation is well appreciated and you're invited to join us again as we consider global Marxism from the top down. This is Frank Goss for Vintage Broadcasting.